Hi, my name is Christy Kramer, and this is Michigan Unsolved, the true crime podcast that is solely focusing on unsolved cases in Michigan. There is no case too small. My goal is to give victims of unsolved crimes the voice they deserve. Hey everyone, welcome back. As you know, this is Michigan Unsolved. Uh, My name is Christy Kramer and I am your host as always. And I really wanted to come here today and say a few things before we get on with today's case. Um, Number one, I have been getting so many messages and comments over the last couple of weeks, especially since we released the Kyle Moser case, um, of people thanking me uh, for this podcast. I appreciate that so much. I I do. Um, But I want to make one thing clear. I know I've said this before, but um, the people that should be thanked are all of you. Every share, every listen, every conversation that is generated because you listened to one of these cases or even cases that I haven't covered, any time that you talk about an unsolved case, the thanks goes to you. Because any time that an unsolved murder or a missing person or a crime is discussed and more attention is brought to it, we come closer to finding out what really happened. And that is that is the goal. 100% that is completely and utterly the goal. That is the only reason that I'm doing this. And I honestly, like I said, I'm very, very grateful for all of the comments and the messages that I get. And, um, you know, honestly, keep them coming because it makes me feel good. But I do want you to know that um, it, it is about you guys. It's about, you know, the thanks belongs to you. The, the, the generated buzz in the Kyle Moser case after um, his episode aired, I, I pray that it, it does do a big service to getting, um, to getting his case solved. Um, so I, again, thank you. Thank you all, truly, from the bottom of my heart. And that's going to bring us to today's case. And this is a, this is a special case. If you follow me on the Michigan on Saul Facebook group, um, I've, I made mention of this case the other day. This is a very special two-part episode. I've actually been working on this case for about five weeks now. Um, It is one that I have wanted to cover for a very, very long time. And I feel extremely connected to this case. And as I discuss it, you will understand why. But uh, it's a tough one. It is... um, it is a two-parter. They will be posted almost back-to-back. 
<laughs> I'm not sure if it'll be the same, if the part two will be posted the same day as this one or not, but it won't be more than a day apart. It'll be really, the turnaround will be relatively quickly. But uh, I am forewarning you ahead of time. This is dealing with missing and murdered children, sexual abuse and assault. Um, it could be triggering to some, so please take that into consideration when continuing to listen to this episode. I'll be really honest. Normally, I try to, um, for lack of better words, sugarcoat some things. I, I try not to give you all of the graphic details, but this one, I'm kind of laying it all out there because it's just, it's insane. It truly is insane. Um, so take that, do with it as you will. Um, I totally get it if you want to skip, but this one, whew, um, I've lost sleep over this case. Truly, truly have lost sleep, um, in ways that I can't even tell you nightmares because of this case. I don't know if it's because of the location. I don't know if it's because of, there are reasons that it's very triggering for me as well. But, um, like I said, it's all about bringing in awareness. And this story is so important to tell. Uh, the title of today's case is who is Arthur Ream? And who did he kill? So as I said, today's episode is going to be a bit different than others. Um, part one is actually, that's the one we're doing right now, it's actually a solved case. Part two will delve into the unsolved portion, where we'll discuss not only Arthur Ream, the murderer, but we'll also discuss the missing who are potentially his victims as well. Generally, I have an outline that I follow, um, and I, I will venture off that outline quite often and just kind of talk, but uh, because of, there is so much detail in this, I'm going to kind of stick to it, so if I'm a little bit stiff, I do apologize. I'm going to try to, I do kind of want to stick to what I wrote Um because I don't want to forget anything. I don't want to miss anything because just about every detail is extremely important. So, and, and it's not, please mind you as well, it's not just this case that's important, but it's looking out for signs. Um, I, there was a woman who contacted me, who mess, who um, commented on a Facebook post yesterday and said that she actually knew Arthur Ream as a boy and a man. She's blown away. So I, I think that a lot of times with people like Ream, we don't necessarily always notice the, the clues or the signs. And I think that that's very important as well. So I'm hoping that going through this and maybe you can recognize some of these things and just keep them in the back of your mind. And if you have like a gut feeling about somebody, 
stick with it. <laughs> I always say I trust my gut more than anything else. I, I'm a really good judge of character, and sometimes that can get me in trouble. But um, I don't know. This this guy is seriously a trip. Um, and it's also really good to show you the difference in the legal system between the 70s and the 80s and the 90s compared to now. And I'm not saying that the legal system is good now. It is what it is. But the way we handle things, I think because of technology, it's really changed a lot about um, missing persons and things like that. And and there there's definitely a um, once we get to part two and we discuss the missing girls, there is a theme between them and it enrages me. And we'll get into that um, in part two. But let's get going on this because honestly, my um, iPad's going to die. So I want to get through um, part one. So I've worked in Warren, Michigan um, since 1998. I've actually um, been with my company for 25 years. We've moved multiple locations, but all within um, approximately a half mile radius of each other. Okay. So um, for years, I mean, literally for like 20 of those 25 years, I have driven down um, Shaner Road, which is just a few blocks from my office. And I have seen this large street sign um well not a street sign but it's a large sign that's on the corner of shaner road and herbert street or avenue um and it's for a butcher shop now this is literally in the middle of kind of like a neighborhood um which always seemed odd to me that there was a butcher shop but i never went down that street literally in all the years i've never driven down there so in researching this case I actually Google mapped it and there are, there's houses everywhere, but at the end of the street, it kind of dead ends, um, by some railroad tracks and there is this butcher shop and attached to the butcher shop is a very large warehouse. Okay. So in all these years, I've seen this deer meat processing sign and never in a million years did I ever think that this sign could potentially hold clues to a serial killer that close to where I worked. Okay, now as a side note, the butcher shop has no connection to the case at all. They are a long-standing business in the city of Warren, and I do not want to shine a bad light on them whatsoever. The focus of the investigation is actually on the abandoned warehouse connected to the butcher shop. So, again, they, they are in no way connected to the case. So, in 2018, I actually remember quite clearly the buzz around the office as police ascended on this abandoned warehouse. Um... Like I said, it was literally maybe a half mile away from our office. And before it was abandoned, it actually housed a carpet warehouse. And it was ran by a man named Arthur Ream. I'm not sure. I've seen some things say that he owned it. Others say that he ran it. So I'm not positive on that. I, I did look up like the tax records, but it did not uh, show a specific name. Um, but Warren police and the FBI were at that point on that day in 2018 raiding this warehouse. 
and they were searching for evidence. But they hadn't come and said evidence of what? So the warehouse had actually said untouched since 1998 when Reem actually went to prison for pleading guilty to third-degree sexual misconduct against a 15-year-old girl. He was sentenced to 4 to 15 years in prison, and he was still serving that sentence when he was charged and convicted of murder. Inside the warehouse, they found a bed and many other items that they took away in sealed paper bags. Arthur's ex-wife told police that after they had split up, he actually moved into the warehouse. And that could explain the bed. At least, that's all I pray it was used for. Ten years before the raid on the warehouse in 2008, while he was in prison, Reem was convicted of kidnapping, raping, and murdering a 13-year-old girl 22 years earlier in 1986. Yeah, you heard me. 22 years earlier. And she was 13. Cynthia Jocelyn Zarzicki, lovingly known as Cindy or Cindy Joe, was born June 8th, 1972. And even though in 1986 she was only 13, Cindy had a boyfriend. He was a 14-year-old boy named Scott Ream. On Sunday, April 20th, 1986, she had left her house and walked to a local Dairy Queen in East Point, Michigan, where she lived. When she left her house, her little brother went after her, but she told him to go back home because she wanted to go alone. You see, she had gone to that Dairy Queen many times before, but this day was different. Scott's father, Arthur, had told her that he was throwing a surprise party for Scott for his birthday, and he had made arrangements for her to meet him at the Dairy Queen so he could pick her up and take her to the party. But there were a few problems with this party that Cindy was not aware of. First was that Scott's birthday was actually in January not April. And Scott was out of town. One of Arthur's employees at the time had requested some time off to go to Texas. And Reem told him that he could only have the time off if he took young Scott with him. He offered to pay all the airfare and expenses. The employee and 14-year-old Scott Reem left Friday, April 18th for Texas. The employee and Scott's mother testified to this fact in court. When Cindy arrived at the Dairy Queen, she willingly got into Reem's van, not knowing that it was a pre-planned trap and that she would never be seen again. In 2008, Cindy's body was found buried in a makeshift grave only 18 inches deep. Reem led investigators to the property in northern Macomb County. But this property was actually a portion of an empty wooded land that spanned 24 acres. After his conviction, Reem wrote hundreds of pages in prison, many just ramblings, but there was one section called The Disappearance at the Dairy Queen, The True Story. 
He went on to write that he wanted everyone to know the truth of what happened. He claims he did not kill Cindy, but that he was responsible for her death. He claims that he picked her up at the Dairy Queen at Nine Mile in East Point just after 11 a.m. and took her back to his office, which was a trailer near the warehouse. Remember the warehouse with the bed? He says he went back to the office to finish up paperwork. He doesn't say what Cindy was doing while he was finishing this paperwork, but he goes on to write that later his son Scott showed up. And he left his son and Scott at the off. I'm sorry. He left his son and Cindy at the office. Okay, nothing like throwing your own son under the bus, right? And even better than that, as I mentioned before, testimony in court under oath proves Scott was out of state that day. So Reem goes on to write that when he went back to the trailer, Scott and Cindy were not there, but the phone was ringing. When he answered the phone, it was Scott on the phone saying that Cindy had fallen and gotten hurt in the warehouse. Reem says that when he, walked in the, when he walked in the door of the warehouse, Cindy was lying on the floor and it was obvious that she was dead. He writes that Scott told him that, he had, that they had been playing on the carpet rolls and she had fallen down an elevator hole while they were playing. Again, Reem claims that he did not kill her but that he was responsible because if he had secured the because he had secured the elevator opened and if he hadn't have done that she wouldn't have fallen to her death he then claims that he and scott who again was in texas took cindy's body to the wooded area in northern macomb county near 23 mile and north avenue and buried her body can you say dad of the year like, seriously, he was 14 years old and you're literally throwing him under the bus. Now, um, he does not make any mention that I have seen in his writings regarding her sexual assault, but he did admit to doing so to the police and he was charged and convicted of her rape as well as murder. So I'm not really sure when that came into play, but, and I don't want to know, honestly, but um, obviously the entire rest of the story was made up. So um, he uh, also in his writings mentions his anger issues. And he says, quote, anger can lead to reoffending because I focus my anger towards one person. And if that person is a young and vulnerable female, I could reoffend. Focusing my anger at one person makes me feel better. What? Are you freaking kidding me? I. Okay, yeah. Now, I can only imagine the pain that Scott would have felt as his own father was trying to pin the death on someone he cared about on him. But... Prior to Arthur's in-court claims Scott of Scott's involvement, Scott was tragically killed by a drunk driver January 18, 1994, at the young age of 22. Scott's mother willingly testified to ensure to clear her son's name. 
Scott's mother also testified that um, Art Ream actually liked having Scott around because the girls were attracted to Scott and um, he liked being the cool dad and would um, provide liquor and stuff like that to the kids. Back in 1986, when Cindy went missing, police assumed that she was a runaway, so they actually did little investigation. Cindy had told a few friends about meeting Arthur at the Dairy Queen, and she even wanted them to come with her. Not sure if she felt uneasy or, you know, if if her gut was telling her to maybe not go, but none of her friends were available. According to one of those friends, in a not-too-long-ago interview, um, she stated that the Monday after Cindy went missing, she actually told the police about the party and that Cindy was meeting Art Ream, but the police had already decided that Cindy was a runaway, a runaway and dismissed her claims. Uh, in 2008, when Cindy's body was found, um, the police officer, I believe it was a detective, in East Point, um, told the Detroit News that during all of his conversations with Art Ream, uh, he would make cryptic comments and he showed very little emotion before or after the body was found. He even stated, he, I'm not even sure he's capable of remorse and he fits the profile of a psychopath. Another East Point detective told the Detroit Free Press that Reem had admitted to having a fetish for teenage girls. In fact, in a video released by prosecutors, Reem can be heard telling the officials, I'm into or was into teenage girls, okay? In fact, court records show that in July of 1974 in Shelby Township, not far from where Cindy Zarziski's body was found, Reem, who at the time was 26, and his brother-in-law, who was 15, picked up a 15-year-old hitchhiker. Reem pulled up next to her, picked her up, pulled a switchblade on the young girl, and forced his brother-in-law to duct tape and blindfold her before he raped her. Reem claims that it was his 15-year-old brother-in-law that committed the crime, not him. Seriously. Here we go again where he's blaming somebody else considerably younger than him for doing his crime. Unfortunately, under the 1970s law, Reem was charged with statutory rape, but the charge was later reduced to indecent liberties with a minor female child. The kicker, get this, is he told the free press Okay, he literally told the free press this. We picked up a hitchhiker and molested her. I don't know how more to say about it. I, he said, referring to his 15-year-old brother-in-law, let's do it. And I did, stupidly. That in my life, <laughs> let me stop. This is a quote. <laughs> this is a quote from a convicted killer because this was actually an interview that he did after he was convicted of Cindy Zarzicki's murder. This is a quote. That, 
in my life was the worst screw up so far in my lifetime. Quote, that in my life was the worst screw up so far in my lifetime. This guy is nuts. And he obviously has a pattern of blaming others for his crimes. The trial for this offense included testimony uh, from the 15-year-old brother-in-law, who is not named. Um, But he did say that Reem told him, if I ever do this again, I will kill the next victim. He um, was sentenced, he was found guilty and sentenced to five to ten years in prison. Which he, get, which he began serving in August of 1975. Now, we're going to get into a timeline at this point. So really try to pay attention because the timeline is going to literally blow your mind. But um, so in August of 1975, he sentenced to five to ten years in prison. Two months. <laughs> Two months after he started serving his sentence, he wrote a letter to the judge asking for a reduced sentence. He writes, I have done a lot of thinking here in prison in two months. I I want to tell the truth and have a second chance to prove that I will never be in trouble with the law again. I value my family too much to ever risk losing them again. Now at this point, Reem was married and had two children. One son was born in 1970, and I will not name him either. And then Scott, who we've talked about before, was born in 1972. While he was in prison, his wife, whom he married in 1969, filed for divorce. She claimed that he beat her often in front of their children and had had multiple affairs, including one with their 15-year-old babysitter. But this is the family that he so valued. Their divorce was finalized in February of 1978. February, okay? In March of 1978, Bream was granted early parole and was married again one month later in April of 78. This lasted eight months and they were divorced in January of 79. 11 months later, in December of 79, he married a third time. According to prosecutors, during this time that Reem was married to his third wife, he abused at least two other young girls. One was a 12-year-old niece, and the other was a 13-year-old family friend. Both girls were given alcohol prior to their assaults. This wife filed for divorce in 1986, stating that her husband physically abused her. No surprise there. Then, in 1992, Reen says that he found his true love and he married her. Only for her to file for divorce in 1998, claiming that he physically abused her as well. Again, no surprise. But, here's one for the books for you. During the time of his fourth marriage, he'd also been accused of raping yet another 15-year-old girl. This one, I'm not going to believe this. This one, he was actually her legal guardian. Like, who in their right mind 
allowed this man to be the legal guardian of anyone, let alone a 15-year-old girl. He just spent years in prison for kidnapping and raping a 15-year-old girl, and now you're going to make him a legal guardian of one? It's like handing her over to the devil. Just like his established pattern, he gave her alcohol prior to raping her. He did plead guilty to this accusation, but claimed that it was consensual. He said that, but, no, I'm sorry, that did not matter. He claimed it was consensual, but that did not matter since she was only 15 and he was 49. Yes, 40 freaking nine years old. Okay, my apologies for yelling, but oh my God. This assault occurred at his property up in Gladwin, Michigan. He claims, yet again, um, that she got into some liquor that his nephew had left at this cabin. And then they ended up having sex. So here he is blaming someone else yet again. So, as I said, he pled guilty, stating that it was consensual. So, I'm not sure if he assumed he'd get off with, like, a slap on the wrist or what, but he was actually sentenced to 4 to 15 years in prison for this. And then, at the 10-year mark, he was preparing to be released when he was charged with Cindy Zarzicki's murder. In fact, after... His 2008 conviction of Cindy's murder, four additional women came forward claiming that Reem had sexually assaulted them as well. Click on Detroit, Channel 4, reported in 2019 that Reem spent a lot of time in Gladwin and that there has been speculation um, of victims up there. Reem was convicted of Cindy's murder in early 2008, but it wasn't until July of 2008 that he finally led officials to Cindy's body. An East Point detective who met with Reem on multiple occasions states that he was a control freak and wants to be in charge. Reem ended up drawing a map to the location of Cindy's body. He did state at one point that he had planned on giving them a false location just to get their hopes up, but decided against it. So, with handcuffs attached to a chain around his belly and shackles on his feet, Arthur Ream led police officials through dense woods in northern Macomb County on a hot and humid July day in 2008. During a 30-minute journey over an old dilapidated bridge and through woods filled with mosquitoes, they dodged trees and brush traveling a half mile south. Reem stopped abruptly and said, I'm pretty sure I buried her right here. An anthropology student from the Michigan State University who was brought in to help with the search knelt down on the hollowed ground and began using a hand tool to carefully remove the earth. Moments later, she found a purse. She opened up the purse and pulled out an REO Speedwagon cassette tape. In that moment, they all took a deep breath and drew back 
knowing what they uncovered. Not wanting to disturb anything else, they called for a forensic team and waited for more police to arrive to uncover what lied beneath. Those, those watching Reem in those hot, muggy woods said he stood there emotionless. They took him back to the transport van because they wanted to make sure that he did not get any kind of gratification from the uncovering of Cindy Zarzicki. Cindy's body was removed and taken to the medical examiner. It was noted on her autopsy that there were no broken bones or any noticeable trauma to her body, which again proves that Reem's story of her falling from the elevator is a lie. There is no way she could have fallen from that distance and not had some type of injuries. Cindy was turned over to her family and she is buried at Lakeport Cemetery in St. Clair County, Michigan. Her grave is adorned with the beautiful marble bench that is inscribed with the words, always, forever, in our hearts. So please come back for part two as we discuss in more detail the 2018 raid on the abandoned warehouse in, Nor in Warren and what police believe is still buried on the property at 23 Mile and North Avenue in Northern Macomb County. This is Michigan Unsolved.